Weirdo Bookworms Unite! We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Fans of horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and more can stop by as we chat about what we've been reading. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Genre Junkies. Hello, friends. Hello, Scott. Hello. So tonight is one of my most favoritest nights. It's a horror night. Whenever you pick a horror book for this, you just get a little bit of a spring in your step. I really do. And um, because, I mean, I love all our genres, of course, but I am I am a horror heart at my core. And what a <laughs> horror book did you choose this time? Oh, I sure, sure did. Um, I guess I should tell everybody what that book is. Yeah, go for it. So, for this edition of Genre Junkies, we read The Troop by Nick Cutter. I'm sure a lot of you out there have heard of it. Very famous book. And in case you haven't, let me give you a little recap. The Troop by Nick Cutter. Scoutmaster Tim takes his group of young teen boys on a wilderness overnight trip on an uninhabited island. Tim, a doctor, unwittingly exposes them to a virus of voracious hunger. This is a bioengineered, infectious horror from which the children may never escape. Dun dun dun. <laughs> and it's in Canada! Yeah, I didn't catch at the very beginning that it was built in Canada, but once I kind of caught on. Yeah. Specifically, they're, they're Boy Scouts and they referred to loyalty in the Queen. Like, yeah. oh, oh, okay. We're in Canada now. I, I missed that. Well, there's some references because they're um, on or around or near Prince Edward Island and there's some references to Anne of Green Gables, of course. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to overhype a very hyped up book from the horror community. But in a word, uh, let me just say damn. Yeah. I mean, oh, this book is good. Oh, it's so good. It's so horrifying. It's, it's oh, it's disgusting. It's vile. In case you couldn't tell from the synopsis, maybe it's sort of a warning for some people, this book has bad things happening to kids. Yeah, a lot of really bad things. It's it's about bad things happening to kids. Yeah. And so that's hard for some people. It can be. So I just wanted you to know that going in, in case uh, you haven't read this book yet. Um. Well, I could kind of just go on and on and on and on about this book, but let's try to have some structure to this episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> let's start with my experience score, our experience score. Should right. I go first? Yeah, you go first. Um. This was... An absolute obsession experience for me. I loved it. And for me, when I give something obsession, it's because it keeps playing on and on in my mind and it won't quit. And I keep thinking about it while I'm reading it. After I'm reading it, I want everybody that I meet on the street to read it. Definitely an obsession for me. What about you, Scott? I'm having a lot of trouble deciding what I want to give it. For me, my own experience with it was truly a page turner and in the best way. I couldn't put it down when I was reading it. What I was surprised by, though, is that as much as I loved the book and as much as, as excited as I was about the book, I didn't wake up in the middle of the night thinking about the book, which is really kind of my litmus test. My litmus test, yes for an obsession level book. That said, with what you said, I want everyone to read this book. I want people who don't read horror to read this book. There's a lot of masterpiece worthy writing in this book. The character work, the plot itself, mm -hmm. the idea, it's it's so strong and so good that I'm kind of post-reading it, obsessed with the book. Well, I, I don't know, but I think that counts as obsession. That's fair. Maybe sometimes it takes a minute for a book to sink in to really get the experience score. 
more. But it, it, it I mean, as I was reading it, it, this is absolutely a bona fide page turner. Now, also, this one is not for the faint of heart or weak of stomach. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> it's um, it's nasty. It's nasty. I mean, it goes really, there. if you want to go on a diet, this is a good book to read while you're doing it. You're not going to want to eat much. Oh, my God. I just, a lot of times, well, I like to read on, like, my lunch breaks and stuff. I I could not eat. I had to eat before or after reading passages from this book because um did not make me feel very appetized. It's pretty disgusting, the stuff that they do and the things that they eat. <laughs> I mean, right from the very get-go, this is in the very first chapter of the book, there is a character who is discussing uh, cracking open the ribcage of a raccoon that's dead on the side of the highway. Yeah. And that's that's light. <laughs> that's, if you will, just the appetizer. Right? That's not like in the first few pages of the book. That's uh, that's hardly anything. Um, I like all kinds of horror. I like all different sorts of horror in books and novels, of course. But I think we can all agree, for those of us who really love the horror subgenre, is that good horror sticks with you and it invades you on different levels, like this book did for me. It made me feel visceral. It made me think. It touched my heart. It it just got into every little nook and cranny of my being and made me feel something. If I may, I think the strongest part of this as a horror book is because the characters are so strong. Oh, they are so strong. I love every single character in this book, regardless of the choices they make after the events of the book happen. I, I love all of the characters. Same these because these characters is um is what makes this story. I mean, the plot, of course, is tremendous and exciting, but the characters is what gives it um meat, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so before we talk about writing style, should we talk about characters a little? Yeah, bit? that was my segue. <laughs> that was that was my little segue into it. It was very smooth. It was very smooth. I thought so. <laughs> so um, start with uh, Scoutmaster Tim Riggs. He's a doctor. He's kind of an unwitting but um accepting bachelor. He's had the same group of boys. How many are there? One, two, three, five. four, five boys. Yep. Since they were little kids and now they're 13. And he's kind of supposed to be the shepherd, the protector, the defender of these boys. And he actually is really the one that puts them in danger and starts the horror of this going. Oh, yeah, because he himself doesn't consider himself to be a very special person. In fact, he really sees himself as being pretty ordinary. You know, he did some Doctors Without Borders. He became the town doctor himself, but he really likes the fact that he just, he's just the local sawbones. He's not some big savior. He just does basic doctoring stuff, and he really loves these kids that he has brought up through the ranks of the Canadian Boy Scouts. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's not tremendous things to say about him, but it's kind of is interesting to have this character and in this novel too, where there's there's not like a lot of romanticism. With all of these characters, you get to know them so, so, so well. And sometimes what you think you know about them turns out to not be true. Well, okay. I just want to say all of the boys in this book, they fit a stereotype. And while that sounds really tropey, they're very well realized stereotypes and they're very deep and very, they're very actualized. And in particular, I think that these boys, men, boys would really relate to these kids. 
So there's Kent. Kent is kind of the biggest boy. He's the roughneck kind. He's like a testosterone monster for a 13-year-old. So yeah, Kent is, he's the kid who grew taller than all of his other classmates. He got more muscles earlier than all of his other classmates. He's the big guy and he uses that to his advantage. Absolutely. Then there's Ephraim. Um, There's, hmm, what to say about Ephraim? He is kind of your stereotypical ADHD child, has a little bit too much energy. He's very angry. Little hotheadish. Yeah. See, I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's, I don't mean to sound like sexist, but maybe it's because you're a dude. You're doing a really good job at like kind of succinctly putting these dudes in little boxes. So I'm going to let you keep going. I'm just going to keep prompting you. You got it. I, I think as a boy, not only was a part of each of these boys inside of me, <laughs> um, I knew someone who was like each one of these. I have someone from elementary school, middle school, who I have put into each one of these characters as I was reading the book so all the scott's old little school school chums when you weren't just school boys um you should be proud scott pictures you in these really <laughs> fucked up rules and i i, th- I don't think I, w- I will be alone in this no i'm just teasing how about max so max is kind of an everyman he's very sensitive but he has he hasn't quite matured. He hasn't quite stepped up into being a young adult yet. Mm-hmm. He still has a lot of boyishness to him, and he's a little bit reluctant to actually become more of a middle adult. He's kind of go with the flow. Yeah. He's friends with everybody. He's not really enemies with everybody. But F's his best friend. But but F is his very best friend. How about Newt? Newton. Newt's your nerd. He's very smart. He loves to read books. He Talk loves- about sensitive. Well, yeah. He's the one that everyone picks on, even his friends, and he just takes it, which makes him an easier target. Yeah. Uh, I, we've, we all know kids like this. He's not just what we in nerd culture now just reference as a nerd, because a lot of people are nerds and still quote unquote cool now. Yeah, no, he's not that kind of nerd. No, but he's still, but this still exists. He is a dweeb. He's a, he's a dork. He's this is getting very technical. Well, yeah. <laughs> He's he doesn't have the social graces to get along with these other boys. He's really much more interested in his science mm. and his learning and his books. But I mean, he's still friends with these boys and they're still friends with him. He's just an easy target. How about Shelly? Shelly's the quiet one. Mm-hmm. He's the one who's a little unsettling because he just doesn't talk much. He doesn't show much emotion. There's something there that's just unnerving to people. He's older than his years. He's... People don't know what to do with him, I think. Yeah. People don't... Shelly isn't an easy one to fit exactly into a box, I would say, out of all of them. Even though they all are kind of... um, wonderfully archetypal in their way. He's kind of your wild card when you meet him. You're like, huh, I don't actually know if I quite know a shell in my life, you might think. I can think of someone specifically who just had very little personality. Uh Uh-huh. There just wasn't a whole lot there. It's like they really hadn't found who they were yet. And they weren't trying. They just... 
they just kind of existed for a while. Yeah. And that that's really what Shelley fits in. So these are all just kind of your surface level introductions and kind of ours, well, especially Scott's basic takes on these characters. Kind of as we said, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it's like you will really get to know these characters and you will get to know them deeply and intimately as they go through this absolutely horrific, disgusting, wonderful journey. <laughs> and I think that's a great way to segue into the writing style because the way that you get to learn about these characters is well, it's not unique, but it's excellently executed. How, what, how so? What do you mean? Well, the author himself says that he stole <laughs> straight up from uh, Stephen King uh-huh. and specifically Carrie, which I thought was really cool. I have not read Carrie, but for me, it, would, it was actually pretty unique. The way that you learn little bits about characters as you go. You kind yes. of, you see their surface level character, then you see, then you learn something about them in their past. Then you hear about them from their own first person perspective. Right. And it's, it's, it's a really nice balanced layering of character development. Yeah. And his reference to Carrie, that's in the uh, author's notes at the end, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, that's right. He has a very beautiful writing style, um, which is part of what makes it so scary. Um, His horror is quiet. It's almost... um, the word that keeps coming to mind, and it's kind of stupid, but is literary. Like, he almost reads like a literary, a quote-unquote literary fiction author. Mm-hmm. So it's like, even when you're reading something that's, like, disgusting or, you know, horrifyingly strange, um, that's almost what makes it worse, right? Is that he writes about it so commonplace. Very well executed. He doesn't fit into your typical mold of a horror author. It's not gratuitous, yet it's terrifying. I mean, he has such a way of description. He uses a lot of similes and a lot of... Metaphor. Yeah, and and particularly he has a almost an obsession with sense and tastes. Yes. Which, particularly for this book, it, it's, it's an incredible tool to use yes. in writing this book because of the subject matter. But because of yeah. the way that he describes things, using that, you you really are put yourself there. Well, his style is that kind of descriptive style that I love, where there's just so much this beautiful painting for you. And every every book, you know, it's like you're watching a movie in your head. This was so cinematic feeling for me. I don't know if I can imagine or would want this adapted into a film, but um, it's cinematic in the way that he writes it. This is one of the few books that six months from now, a year from now, I will look over to you and ask you, hey, what movie was this scene from? And you'll say, oh, no, right? that was from a book. Yes. And, I, and, and it's so descriptive that I truly visualize this book in, just like you said, a cinematic way. It's like I watched some of these scenes. Yeah. I can't imagine this being um, pleasingly adapted for most of us into a movie because I think they'd have to pull a lot of their punches and I wouldn't be cool with that. So there's kind of an inevitable comparison to Lord of the Flies that happens with this book. I think it's a perfect comparison myself. Well, yes, I love Lord of the Flies. It's one of my favorite books of all time. At one point, I turned to Scott and said, this makes Lord of the Flies look like an Aesop's fable. (laughs) And I don't totally mean that because Lord of the Flies is in its own wonderful, beautiful way, horrifying and disturbing. That's almost why I don't want to compare the two, because (sighs) they're different. They are different. But at the same time, I think if you like Lord of the Flies, you're going to like the troop. 
I think it's fair to compare the two because in some respects, I think that this book does a better job of representing the mentality of young boys. Okay. I mean, I love Lord of the Flies and I think that it's very powerful, but I don't identify with the characters in that book. Lord of the Flies, no. But I actually identify with the characters in this one. Right. And that's kind of the one of the differences is I think that, I mean, I could, this is my perception is that Nick Cutter wanted you to feel for and with these characters, whereas William Golding in Lord of the Flies wasn't necessarily so much making you feel for and with the boys. But William Golding's point of Lord of the Flies was boys boys are are evil. evil. Now, I wouldn't say that that is the point of this book. (laughs) No, I wouldn't either. But it does explore very strongly how boys react in situations, what their deep-seated character is like. Right. And this does a better job of actually representing what boys are really like. There's kind of a cool thing in this book as well that at first I didn't love, but I very quickly warmed to. And that's these um kind of every other chapter, every chapter or so, there's these flash forwards or flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, you know, kind of log um, entry style or interviews, stuff like that. And I don't, like I said, I, d- I didn't love that. It took me not long at all to warm up to it. And then I, I really liked how he was giving us that information and we were experiencing it kind of on the same page as everybody else. It, it was a great way to, um, Give us some exposition. It's one of the best ways. It's really the only way that I can think of for you to explain to the audience what is happening scientifically, what happened historically, and what caused this, while not having to explain that to the main characters. And sometimes when stuff like that happens, you don't feel like there's any stakes in the book anymore, because you're like, oh, well, now I know about this, that, and the other thing. And luckily, that never happened for me with this book. I never felt like comfortable. Oh, agreed. Despite getting external information, I never felt like, oh, well, you know, everybody's going to get off the island. Everything's going to be just fine. And there's going to be no problems. And it's just a coming of age story. I think the reason why it's so successful and the reason why it carries through the whole thing and keeps that tension up is the reveals actually ping pong between. Some of the reveals, some of the new information is given to you in the current story. Mm-hmm. Then they cut to an interview or a scene in, in the history that doesn't even explain it or reveal it. Just just concedes, yeah, that's a thing that that actually that's a thing that it happens. That's the way yeah. it works. So it, the reveals don't all come from that. The reveals also come from the current story and then are confirmed by that. So yeah. you never know when you're going to get that new information. Absolutely, yeah. It's not um like this is what's going to happen in this chapter and then he feeds it to you. Yeah, feeds feed. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of feel like we should get ready to go into spoiler territory here. Yep. But first, we got to give our appeal scores. So I guess I'll go first on this. I might be overreaching on my appeal score, but it ties in with obsession for me at this, this go around. And I want to give it general because I want so many people to read this book. I really want people to read this book. I mean, at its core, if you're a horror or a science fiction person, you're going to get stuff out of this, I think, Um, which would make it niche. But (sighs) I really think people should read this book. I just really think they should read this book. So I almost don't want to push it into the niche category because I want to try to keep it more open than that. 
I, I think that this has more appeal than just general. I think that this almost, I almost want to say it has mass appeal, to be honest with you. But I think that horror is very divisive. And yes. there's just some people that no matter what, no matter how well it's written, no matter what the subject matter is, they cannot handle horror. And that's why I just don't, I can't give it that mass but I am going to give it broad. Um, I, I'm I'm supporting what you're saying and taking <laughs> it further. Yeah. I mean, as much as the book is horror, it has really strong notes of, as we kind of discussed, William Golding and Michael Crichton. Oh, who, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about a mass appeal writer. I think that this story would be excellent for any young male reader. I think I, that's not to say that I don't think that female readers would enjoy it. I think they Definitely very much would. will. But this is very well realized fiction. Mm-hmm. And I really do want everybody but the most horror adverse to read it. <laughs> well, I appreciate you extending that olive branch to the people of the world. I, I think everybody should read it, but I think a lot of people will um probably crucify us publicly if we make them read it. So, But I, I agree in sentiment. Um, like, this is not a book for our moms. Our moms would not dig this book. No, they wouldn't. Your dad would love it. Yeah, and a lot of our friends and family and people we've met have read this or would read this and love it. So I agree. I mean, there is a broader audience out there for this thing. I think really, because, I mean, we talked about our mothers. Um, my mom, your mom, both very horror adverse. They can't handle it. Nah. And that's why I just cannot give it a mass appeal. Right. But everybody else, anybody else, I would absolutely demand that they read no, this book. Being a friend of the show, Manda. I no, Manda cannot do this one. I kind of want to try it. Oh dear God! I kind of want. If there's anything, I kind of want to try this one. We'll keep you updated on social media if that ever happens. <laughs> And when Amanda fillets Scott alive for making her read this book. Um, okay, guys. I'm going to try to contain myself in the spoiler section. So go grab a quick drink and meet us on the other side. Enjoying the show? Please like and subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Genre Junkies. And don't forget to visit the website, genrejunkies.com. Welcome back. Welcome back. Okay, so I'm going to have to take a few deep breaths here. I've warned Scott I'm going to need some help and some prodding along because I love this book so much that I just want to like vomit, vomit all of the information out at once and I need to pace myself. And it's hard when you love something as much as I loved this book. This could very easily turn into one of those episodes where we just go through the entire plot from start to finish. Right? I almost like, it's almost like a like church group. Okay, if I'm going to take out your hymnals and let's open to this <laughs> passage um so at some point i'm i'm happy that you had such a great experience with this book because at one point i did turn to scott again and say i'm so sorry i'm making you read this because it got real difficult sometimes i mean i pretty much have three words written down on my page of notes in front of me monkey cat turtle oh <laughs> monkey cat turtle actually those and that's well, not even the worst part of the of the book. If it's, you, it's really not. Well, you know, I guess it's interpretive of what you feel to be the most horrific parts of the book is. So, okay, well, again, I think that that's great. Let's talk about Monkey Cat Turtle. 
And then a couple other of the most horrific moments of the book. I get, okay, see, this is my excitement. This is my, I'm nerd, I'm nerding out here so hardcore. So the thing is the worm. It's tapeworm on steroids. It's, it is a genetically modified hydatid. I cannot say that word. Which is, yeah, which is like a, you know, a stomach tapeworm. Only this thing eats everything in you. Everything. You lose 30 pounds in hours. Yes. Because it's just taking you over and instills you with this horrible zombie-like hunger. Yes. Now, I went into this book blind like I usually do, and I thought that this was going to go a zombie route. I, I thought it was going to be more zombie, too. And, it, and it's I kind zombie of like, adjacent. It, I kind of like that it's a little misleading yeah. that you think you might be getting into zombie territory. Um, and I kind of kept that alive in my own little brief synopsis. Yeah. I had heard about these quote-unquote tapeworm diets i've always thought of them as urban legend i have no idea if they're real or not so in this they're very real oh jesus h christ why would you do this guys um so this guy this dr edgerton something like that Mm -hmm. he um creates the two pill solution the two pill problem well he's working on the two pill solution yes right so you would take one pill with this genetically modified uh, tapeworm that was designed to not leave your digestive tract like the real ones have a tendency to do right. and kill you. Um, and then you take the second pill and be allowed to pass it. Well, he uh, he went a little nuts with it and he creates a superworm that cannot be killed that and will kill you in very short order and is incredibly virulent. It will infect its, its number one purpose is to grow and infect here's a little fun fact about me that maybe some of our friends at home don't know one of my kind of phobias is parasitic things if i even hear of someone who they didn't have it but their kid had lice i'm like drag that person outside and light them on fire like i cannot i cannot with ticks Oh my god, just anything, the idea of anything parasitic, tapeworms, oh my god, I I cannot, I cannot handle it. I start to itch and convulse, my skin crawls, I feel weak, that is one of my things. So you have to understand, Sandra is so bad that her fear of it has rubbed off on other people, including myself. I had a co-worker. It's not fear, it's safety. (laughs) I had a co-worker who said, yeah, his his daughter had come home with lice, and I said, go the fuck home. (laughs) I don't want you here. You need to go. You need to go. <laughs> I can't I can't handle it, you guys. So then that phobia is already just gonna get me in a book, but the way that he wrote it just absolutely set my psyche on fire. But I'm I think I'm a stronger, better person for coming out the other end of it. Well, I pictured you uh like F. Yes, I would have been like you F. You would have been F. Digging to China with God knows what a stick Using a or whatever screw in your ear canal. Cha- oh Jesus, chasing it around Ugh. my ankle bone with a stick. Oh my god, on the oh my god. The systematic breakdown of F aided by the incredibly Psycho- psychic psychopathic shelly that uh, reveal was disturbing. done so well that reveal uh, was, was done brilliantly because you could tell something was off but i didn't expect him to go there well and they kind of say they the experts say that these people people who are predators people who are sick people who are killers whatever they um they need opportunity and he just got like he hit the jackpot of opportunity being trapped on an island with other kids it's like Candyland for him. He tortures Kent and Ephraim, and he kind of tortures 
Max and Newt as well, but he can really break them down. We torture Scoutmaster Tim, and that's the first point when you start to yes. see something's wrong with him. When he when they've locked up Scoutmaster Tim because he's clearly sick. Oh yeah. And he stuffs the towels and duct tapes it shut so he has no light. Creepy, you little creep. Then okay, so one of those buzzwords, cat. Oh yes. So what about the cat? In fact, okay. this actually might have been the worst scene in the book for me. Um, this is a true depiction of how depraved this individual is, Shelley. There is no redeeming him. There's no magic pill that's going to make Shelley better and so he can live amongst us in society, I don't think. He is not well. He delights. He is sexually aroused by torturing and killing things. And the first time he really got to live that out was on his mother's rescue kitten. And the only way you can read that passage of the book is quickly. <laughs> yeah, I had to just kind of read it quickly. I didn't go through and like, you know, or take a break. I was like, ah, I'm just gonna take my medicine and read this passage about the cat. What was the point in the book when you looked at me and said, I'm sorry, or you're the gonna turtle. hate me? It was the turtle? I mean, the cat is really bad because the cat's totally innocent. The monkey was terrible because I love monkeys and I love cats and I love turtles. But uh, the, mon <laughs> the monkey was especially terrible because it's so clinical. But at the same time, the person recording the observations is even like, oh, dear God, this is above and beyond me as a scientist making a, you know, sort of object observation. Well, that was so cool because they had they had the main doctor giving out this clinical observation of what's happening to the monkey. And it's horrible. It's it's disgusting. And then he steps out for about 15 minutes and his underling comes in and starts giving the, you know, play by play. Yeah. But he's saying, oh, dear God. Oh, my God. What right. has happened? Oh, dear God. And then he comes back in and just starts giving the same clinical report. Right. Because clearly he's a little sociopathic himself. Yeah, he's not a well man in his own right. And then the turtle is just heartbreaking to read because these boys are, they're trying to do something for survival. And then, of course, there's kind of this subtext going on with Max enacting a lot of, like, I, I don't know, like, prepubescent rage and anger at his situation. And it's kind of all coming out um, on the turtle. It's brutal because these boys don't know how to kill something and uh, they make very messy work of it. Well, it's the equivalent to in, again, The Lord of the Flies when they first kill, when they when they make their first kill. Mm -hmm. And in Lord of the Flies, the boys all dance around with joy and glee. But in reality, they discover how something does not want to die. How it fights. It will fight you and it will struggle and it's not just going to give up and say okay well you win you need to eat me no it fights forever and it's just so sad for the turtle and its babies that they discover later but they help the babies yes but it's just so sad they re they they really realize their humanity in that moment well absolutely and like i said there's a lot of misplaced aggression on max's part kind of coming to a head uh with this moment of when he's taking out so much aggression on on the turtle but it's like they're so desperate and they're so hungry but it's like you can't eat a turtle? You can't kill a turtle? What's wrong with you? Like, 
no, not the turtle. No. <laughs> and especially having, like, they have no game plan for, like, how to um kill and butcher the turtle. That in retrospect, all I can do is laugh to keep myself from crying. <laughs> I think it speaks volumes, though, that three of the most horrific moments in the book, and they're not the most horrific, <laughs> in my opinion... But three of the most horrific points have nothing to do with the worms themselves. Well, another thing that's just kind of horrific is, in general to me, how the worm takes over. In the process of killing Kent, Shell becomes riddled with worms, who are then reproducing and reproducing at an alarming rate inside of him. And he becomes this incredibly strange, zealot-like vessel for the worms. Well, the, it describes it finally at that point of it tunnels up the spinal column yes. and taps into the brain and basically releases just a whole bunch of chemicals to make you feel godlike. You yes. feel amazing. You feel no pain. You feel like the most powerful being in the universe. And externally, you can barely speak. You're groaning. You're a little zombie-like. Yeah, you're kind of... I mean, especially him. He's just so gross. He's got this weird distended worm belly, and he's just kind of scuttling along like a crab. So that was my most horrific moment. Yeah. The moment where Shelly is crab-walking, chasing Newton, <laughs> and then his distended stomach which has already been described as just being like this bulbous flap that's bouncing underneath him yeah. detaches from his <laughs> desiccated body yeah. and splatters into a giant puddle of crawling yes. worms and then you puke for three days and then you can finally read the next passage of the book i put the book down <laughs> I know. I put the book down for half a day after that scene. That was that, that was, was the, the scene that broke me. You're like, I need some fresh air for a couple of days. And that was the scene that the most I could visualize as if it was in a movie. It was it was truly disgusting. Yeah. So did you see Max as being the survivor? You know, I did. Yeah. Uh, well, not right away. At first, I thought there would be no survivors. And then same. pretty soon, I think about a quarter of the way through the book, there is a reference to the fact that there is one survivor. And so for the rest of the book, you're kind of thinking who's going to survive. And it, yeah. the book really hints pretty strongly that it will be Newt at the end. But that's why I kind of thought it would be Max. Mm -hmm. Because I thought Newt was a little bit too obvious. He was just a little bit too capable and had too much character growth to actually walk out of there. Right. Uh, I did not, however, anticipate the way that he would die. No, I didn't either. Um, sad. Yeah. He gets shot by the military dudes. And again, the way that it's described in this book, it's... It's like you're really watching it happening, and there's a detached quality to it. Yeah. It, he doesn't say, and then suddenly he's shot through the neck. He says, yeah. suddenly a starred hole opened up in the back of his neck. Like, I don't know how he described it, but yeah. it was just, it was beautiful prose to describe someone being shot through the face. Right. Well, I mean, I was... <sighs> I was kind of naively holding out hope that the diuretic mushrooms would actually be some sort of a cure that could maybe help Newton and help others. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, is uh, there is no cure. This thing is so 
all-encompassing that they had to put something in the water around the island that killed everything, and they napalmed the island. They completely sterilized everything. Because there is actually no coming back from that. And the idea that this could be some sort of biological warfare, too, horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. On levels beyond turtles and kittens and monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) We could keep talking about how horrific this book is forever, but I hope that you've read the book if you're listening to this portion of this of the podcast, but if you haven't, we actually still haven't really spoiled it. <laughs> read it. It's it's that good. So, um with that, uh I'd like to give it our patented execution score. Um how many heighteds out of 5? Oh, I guess I'll go first. How many- If you can say it. How many hydrodids, hydrodids out of five? Um, gosh, it's so hard. I try, even though I'm so excited and I nerd out so hardcore, I try to be a little bit judicious and just giving away all the good high scores. This is a five hydrodid out of five hydrodid book for me, though. It, like I said in the beginning, the type of horror that touches you on so many different levels and so many different feels is what keeps so much, so many of us coming back to horror and being these loyal fans, um, and kind of slaves to it. <laughs> and it's so wonderfully, wonderfully executed horror novel. Yeah. The reason we call it an execution score is because we want to feel more freedom to give something a lower score than what we might give it on, say, Amazon. Uh, just how the author executed it. I can find no flaws with this book. Say, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change anything about it. I, I wouldn't. Um, it's clear that he had a really solid, promising idea to build on. He had completely relatable characters. Um, and, and some of the most horrifically described imagery I can think of this side of Joe Hill. Um, so, I mean, if you classify yourself as a horror fan, 100%, no excuses. You have to read this book, period. There's, Absolutely. There, there is no out for you. Even if you aren't, unless you just completely cannot handle horrific imagery, then you still need to read this book. This is 100% five out of five high yes. in execution. All the high Period. I mean, let it let it touch you. <laughs> let it touch your soul. Let it touch your spinal cord and the weird parts of your heart. Oh, man, it's good. Laugh, cry, be frightened, sleep with the lights on, inspect your food very thoroughly. Man, this is good. It's, I'm so glad you agreed. Yeah. This might be a contender for me of this is going to be like the book to top this year for me of like, okay, any other book I read, try to be better than this. It's only February and you're 100% there. Yeah. Okay, everybody, thank you for joining us on this nerdtastic, horrific uh, journey with the young strapping lads of Nick Cutter's The Troop. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Sandra. And why don't you reach out on social media and let us know what's keeping you reading past your bedtime. (laughs) 